Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, indeed, there is no one like you. There's none who compares with your majesty, with your holiness, with your love, with your righteousness, with your justice, with your goodness, and with your joy. God, we thank you that you have made us in your image, that you have redeemed us from the futile ways of life, and that we are able now to open your word, to hear you speak to us. May you teach us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we are coming to our fifth part in our series social justice in the Bible, and uh, I've hoped that this series has been helpful to you. I know it's been unique from what we typically do from the pulpit here at Foothill, but as uh, Pastor Luke has said, it is uh, like uh, Jude as he uh, writes and says, I wish to uh, write of our common salvation, but I have a need to contend earnestly for the faith, and That is the burden that is upon us as we bring these messages to you. Today, we're addressing the issues of sex, gender, and identity. Now, you might be wondering, how did we jump from uh, talking about ethnicity and race last couple weeks to sexuality this week, besides just arbitrarily picking different topics? Well, in one sense, it, there is a bit of picking different topics, but there is a connection. And the sh- short answer to that is that what today is being labeled sexual minorities are grouped together in the larger social justice agenda. We're told that these sexual minorities are being mistreated and oppressed just like racial minorities have been, and therefore they need liberation as well. And so it's easy with that mindset to slide from race to sexuality. And we see this connection between uh, racial oppression to sexual oppression very clearly in the organization Black Lives Matter. It's an organization that seems to be devoted to racial justice exclusively, But BLM has actually stated their goals as including sexual uh, priorities as well. And I want you to see this. Here are some of their goals that they've listed. And and let me say, they recently changed their website. So you have to uh, dig a little bit to find these that were posted up for most of the year. Uh, They recently made their about page a little more innocuous. But... uh, Make no mistake, these priorities have not changed from what they are about. They say this, they say, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. They go on, they say, we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip 
of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she, he, or they disclose otherwise. And finally, they describe this. They say, we disrupt the prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Do you see how the, this connection between uh, race and sex, how they are seen gr- grouped together, this idea of advocating for racial minorities spills over into advocating for sexual minorities. Now, if you've been with us through this series, I hope you can be able to pinpoint why it is that they are in cahoots with one another, why these things are lumped together in the same category. And that's because of critical theory. Critical theory. You thought we could get away from it, but we can't. Just a quick review. Critical theory is a broad discipline that has been taught in our universities for decades and is now becoming mainstream. Being rooted in Marxist ideology, it teaches that society is made up of two groups of people, those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed. Those who set the norms and hold the power in society, i.e. the majority, are the oppressors, and those who are in the minority are the oppressed. And this lens for seeing the world is then applied to all areas of society. You've no doubt heard these different terms. Sexism, right? Male oppression of women. Homophobia. Heterosexual oppression of homosexuals. Ableism. Have you heard that one? Able-bodied people oppressing special needs people. Or colonialism. One country oppressing another. Racism. Whites oppressing blacks. Now, we know that in some of these, in these categories, there have been wrong done from one group to another. We're not denying that fact. Uh, obviously, as Pastor Lucas talked about the last few weeks, racism is a real sin and is something that has caused great damage, particularly in our country, but throughout the human centuries. And in each one of these, there has been wrong and sin that is done between individuals. But to say that everybody in one category is guilty of oppressing everybody in the other category is false. But you see, to hold to critical theory, to believe that you need to stand with all of the oppressed groups, then they become to be inclusive of all those who claim to be oppressed, all those who are without power. If they are a minority, they are therefore without power, and therefore they need liberation. This is why the gay rights movement turned into the LGBTQ movement, which is now being conjoined with the racial justice movement, because it's all stemming from the same worldview. These are all branches from the same tree. Now, as we've noted before, that many Christians jump on the critical theory bus through their concern for racial justice. But you see, once you're on the bus, It's easy to slide from seat to seat. And as we've argued previously, many Christians get pulled into this because of their desire to love those who are neglected and marginalized. And that desire, at its core, is a good thing. 
But there's Christians, and especially younger Christians, I believe you of the millennial and Gen Z uh, generations are most susceptible to believing that our approach to LGBTQ individuals needs to change. The church has got it wrong, and we need to make changes. Now, we know that the cry, the demand for the church to respond differently to these sexual minorities has grown through the years into a, a, a raging force that's all around us. You can't turn anywhere, you can't turn on any uh, media source without seeing advertisements or an argument towards acceptance and affirmation of these people and their lifestyles. And that has included the church. There are many in the church today, and they are gaining steam for advocating for full inclusion and acceptance of LGBTQ people in the church. There are now unqualified calls affirming these sexual lifestyles and identities of these individuals. There are calls to cease labeling everything that's not heterosexual as sin. The calls for Christians who identify as LGBTQ to have full inclusion in the church without the need for repentance because there's nothing wrong. I want you to hear some of this. Listen to the, this statement by a pastor in San Diego. He said this. He said, the inclusion and equality of LGBT people is non-negotiable. It's not an issue in which we can live in the tension with. It's a human rights issue, and anything less than full equality should not be tolerated by Christ followers. Anything else but full equality should not be tolerated by Christ followers. Or consider an organization called the Reformation Project, which describes itself this way. They say that we are a Bible-based Christian organization that works to promote inclusion of LGBTQ people by reforming church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. They're unashamed. This is what we're lobbying for. Friends, this is the challenge before us. The culture has infiltrated the church, and now Satan is using these so-called Christians to push widespread sin, disobedience, and defection from Christ. And we've got to be prepared with an answer. Now, we here at Foothill Bible Church, as we've been saying through this series, believe in the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. We care about what the Bible says. We want to live that out. We want, want to uphold that. We want to teach that. And so we need to turn to the Scriptures to know how to respond. Now, many of you have already been engaged in these conversations. This is not anything new. I'm not letting you know about something you don't already know about. Maybe it's a classroom you've sat in. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. And so my goal this morning is to help us to think biblically about how do we, as those who love and want to uphold the Bible and follow Christ in that, how do we speak to these issues in ways that honors the Lord, that shows love to others, and is faithful to the Bible? Now, we won't be able to address everything that's related to these issues. These are, this is a big topic, and I just want to highlight a few books uh, for you if uh, this, there's more reading you want to do. Uh, for a great 
uh, introductory uh, work on dealing with the Bible says about homosexuality. Uh, this book by Kevin DeYoung is a great starting place. It's not big. It reads quick. He's kind of funny. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to follow. And he deals with uh, biblical arguments that you're going to read out there of Christians who are arguing from the Bible. This passage allows uh, homosexuality in these ways, and he walks through all of those, explains them very clearly. I'd recommend, recommend that to you. Kevin DeYoung, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? A good book on the transgender question is a book by Andrew T. Walker called God and the Transgender Debate. God and the Transgender Debate. What does the Bible actually say about gender identity? Uh, he's a, uh, a uh, uh, part of the e, uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he writes very clearly on that issue. And finally, a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. And... Uh, Answering hard questions about life and sexuality. Homosexuality, transgenderism, only take up a few chapters in this book, but she puts it in the, a larger context uh, that is really helpful for helping to think about why the Christian worldview, uh, we actually have a care and concern for the body, whereas every other worldview disdains the very flesh that we are in. And their arguments and proposals actually talk about tearing down and destroying the body, whereas Christianity talks about upholding a great value in the body that God has made. So those are just a few resources for you. So this morning, I want to encourage you to do two things, okay? First is to know what the Bible says about sex and gender, and secondly is to apply it, okay? It's that, it's that simple. We know what the Bible says, and we need to then apply it and live it out, we need to know and apply these truths so that we can be loving ambassadors for Christ in a, this sexually confused age. So let's begin by looking at what does the Bible say about sex and gender. We need to know this, know what it says. And we're going to begin in the book of Genesis. So I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. What I find is when I look to those who try to advocate for a changing of the biblical morality and in including LGBTQ people in the church, they don't start in Genesis. They jump to the different commands throughout the Bible, the commands in Leviticus. They go to, uh, they, they go to Paul's writings. And they find ways to explain away those commands. They say, oh, well, the cultural context in that command was given is different than today. Or the thing that was being condemned in that passage is not what's being practiced by homosexuals today. You find different ways around it. But I don't see serious engagement with the first few chapters of the Bible. And this is why we need to be rooted here. This is why we need to understand what these chapters say because this is what grounds the Christian worldview. All those other commands that we get throughout Scripture are true, appropriate, and necessary, but they all stem from an understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. And so we need to be rooted here as well. And because it, it really comes back to origins. Where did we come from? Where did humanity arise? Why are we here? Why is there something here rather than nothing? And what, what is the purpose of our lives? Why do we have flesh and blood and what are we to do with our lives? You've got to go at the level of worldview and answer where we came from. As we look at Genesis 1 through 3 this morning, we're not going to exposit all the chapters. I'm just going to highlight some verses that are important for this discussion. But the first is starting at the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And here we get the first principle that we need to know is that God as the starting place. God is the starting place for a discussion of what the Bible says about sex and gender. Here in the first verse, God is assumed. He is not, uh, you don't have to explain the existence of God. You simply hear God pops on the scene. In the beginning, God created. He's already existing before this, and he comes and creates. He's the sovereign, self-existent one, the one who creates out of nothing. He didn't need anything other than himself, but he created out of his generosity. It's important to see from the first verse of the Bible that God is the creator, right? That's the first thing it says about God in all of the Bible is that he created. Created the heavens and the earth. He made it all. There's no part, there's nothing that has existence apart from the Lord. And this includes us as humanity. Because he is the creator, he is sovereign and supreme. He stands over all. And mankind was created to submit to, his, to their benevolent creator. So you cannot understand our reality, who we are as bodies, as people, without first starting with the Lord and his purpose for us. That's the first thing we see here in Genesis. Second thing we see is that God's image is our glory. God's image is in us is our glory. And I want you to see this in, in verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Day six, this is the climax of God's creation. He's, the biblical author Moses here spends the most time describing day six than, he, than any other day. This is the highlight of God's creation. He was going to do something special. Everything is building up to this point. And here we see that God has endowed mankind with something that he did not give to any other part of his creation. That is making him in his image and in his likeness. This declaration here at the very beginning when mankind was first created is foundational to how we live. Being made in God's image not only speaks about what we are to do, but it speaks about uh, the totality of our existence. It frames the issue of identity. Who are we as people? Who are we as humans? We're made in the image of God first and foremost. That is where all discussions of identity for people begins. But what does this image of God mean? Well, the late theologian Anthony Hokema in his volume Created in God's Image is helpful here, and he, he describes that there's really two uh, uh, things that, are, that can be said about the Im what the image of God is. The first is that we are to mirror God. What does it mean to, to be the image of God? It means that we, we are to mirror God. As a mirror reflects, so man should reflect God. When one looks at a human being, one ought to see in him or her a certain reflection of God, because it's his image. But flowing out of that, number two, we are to represent God, represent him. If it's true that when one looks at a man or woman, he should see something of God in him, it follows that man represents God on earth. As God's representatives, 
then we must do not what we like, but what God desires. We are his representatives. We reflect him. We represent him on earth. Now, there's so much that we can say from this, so much that spills out into who we are as humans and what society should be about based upon these realities. But the thing I want you to see here is that foundational to what it means to be made in the image of God is that we have a special relationship with God. We're made in no one else's image but God's image. Therefore, foundational to who we are is that relation, that vertical relationship with our creator. Uh, Anthony Hokema, the, the theologian, says it this way. He says, man is bound to God as fish is bound to water. When a fish seeks to be free from the water, it loses both its freedom and its life. When we seek to be free from God, we become slaves of sin. Don't we know this to be true? We are bound to God, find our life in him, and it's only foolishness that would seek us to separate from him. So when Adam and Eve were created here in Genesis chapter 1, they were in perfect relationship with God. They loved God, they obeyed him, they served him, and they were completely and totally satisfied. They found their complete fulfillment in God, and they were privileged to be those who imaged God on earth. Hokema says again, no higher honor could have been given to man than the privilege of being an image of the God who made him. No higher honor and have the privilege of being imaging the creator. And folks, this is still true in a sense today. You and I have been given the great honor of imaging and mirroring our God to this world. We show something of who God is to those around us, and we know that we cannot do that accurately without the Spirit's grace, and we will get to that. But we need to see here that God originally created mankind with special gifts, special talents, special uh, capacities, and these capacities set us apart from all of creation. What sets us apart from animals? Well, we have the ability to think, to decide, to reason, to dialogue, to debate, to love, to create, to write, and to appreciate beauty. And the list could go on and on. There are so many things, so many capacities that God has given us that sets us apart. And these gifts were intended to be used for the glory of God as men and women related to God, related to each other, and related to the rest of creation. It was going to be a beautiful thing. So we see here that men and women have special worth and glory because they're made in the image of God. They are special. All humans are special because they're made in the image of God. Thirdly, we see in these verses that two genders is God's very good design. Two genders is God's very good design. Notice in verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Fundamental to the image of God is the fact that he made humanity with two sexes or genders, male and female. This was not an accident. This was not a starting place in which mankind was to spread out between the two on some sort of spectrum. This was to be the limiting factor that God set up for humanity, male and female. It's important to notice that male and female are put side by side here. They equally display the image of God. One is not more important than the other. One is not closer to God or more holy than the other. Both 
are made equally before the Lord. And this, this two sexes is beautiful and is built into creation. This is not just good, but it's very good. Let your eye go down to verse 31 of this chapter. After God had created on the sixth day, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. This design was extra special. Everything else, all the other days, ended with, And God saw that it was good. But here on day six, it says that God saw that it was very good. There was something very good about what he did in setting up mankind in this way. And it's this design, this binary of, of, of two sexes that our culture and our world is rebelling against. The binary is offensive to them. And yet, go to delivery rooms all over the world and only two kinds of bodies come out of the womb. There's only two kinds of chromosomes, only two kinds of reproductive organs and this binary is limiting and is restrictive by God's design. And yet it's that very restriction that mankind wants to throw off and, and, and buck against. They want to break out of it. They want to determine everything for themselves. They want to remake themselves in not in God's image, but in whatever image they choose. They don't want to be boxed in to God's binary. But remember, what is the origin story? What is the worldview that so many today are working off of? It's an it's a worldview of evolutionary materialism in which random forces have, have, have caused us to exist. There's no, there's no purpose behind the way we are. We just happen to be this way. We happen to be the top dog in a big food chain. And so there's really no meaning or purpose that we can see in our bodies. This is just molecules that happen to bounce together and pop, here we are. So what's the big deal about, about changing things, about morphing things, about about going back to the drawing board. Because there's no inherent worth in our bodies. If you believe in evolutionary materialism, there's no worth. Sure, we can rebel against nature, but it's not against any one person. Well, there's more here about what the Bible says about gender. The fourth thing I want to draw your attention to is that our biology is purposed for marriage and procreation. Our biology is purpose for marriage and procreation. Right after it says that God made man in his image, the next verse in 1 verse 28, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They were to turn around from being made in God's image, male and female, and turn around and start filling the earth. This means that the, the two, male and female, were to come together in sexual union and produce children. This is what's God's design for male and female. And as we know, it is the only way for humans to procreate today is, is for a male and a female. Now, even with medical advances, it still requires something from the man and something from the woman. We're locked into what God designed. Now, this sexual union that's implied here is put in the context of marriage in the next chapter. Look in chapter 2, Genesis 2, 
verses 24 and 25. This is after Adam has named the animals. He hasn't found a partner suitable for him, and God decides to create a helper fit for him. And so he creates Eve from the rib taken from Adam, and it says then in chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so here we're told that Adam and Eve have become husband and wife. They're not just two random males and females. They are together in a special relationship. And it says that they become one flesh. Now, to become one flesh involves more than just intercourse, but it's not less than that. They are physically and relationally for one another. Physically and relationally, they complement one another. God made males and females to be able to come together and complement. We see Again, this purpose of bearing children from sexual union uh, is played out even in the curses. Chapter 3, mankind falls. And then there is a curse that is given to Eve in verse 16 where God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. In which God is saying this, Adam and Eve, as you are multiplying across the earth, your pain is now going to multiply. Same word is used. You're multiplying. You're have, having children, and now the pain will be multiplied. In other words, God's central, one of parts, part of central design for women, and as, as, as modeled by Eve, is that there would be the, the ability, the potential for bearing children. Adam, Adam gives her the name Eve because she is the mother of all living. This is something unique to females, the, the potentiality for bearing children. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 1, that they have their first children, Adam and Eve do. They begin multiplying and filling the earth. So the point of this is to see that God made two sexes, male and female, and with those he intended and commanded that they produce offspring. The command was not to simply have a loving, monogamous relationship, as some would say, that the main thing the Bible teaches is just about commitment and covenant, and God doesn't care who's in that commitment and covenant. No, he outlines at the very beginning the blueprint for marriage is a man and a woman. There's no, it's not any sort of combination that can fit together here. The unique relationship of marriage is designed for a man and a woman for life. And this implies as well that the only sexual orientation that God designed and is thus allowable is heterosexual orientation. There is not a spectrum. There is, God did not design people with other orientations. He set it up so that there would be, as we call it today, heterosexual orientations. That's not to say that people don't have other feelings, and we will talk about that and why that is, but, but the reality is what God intended what he designed humanity, what his purpose was, was that there would be simply only heterosexual sexual orientation. Now, by, by saying that uh, man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, it's clear that no one else enters in that relationship. And yet what's popular today is what's called polyamorous relationships in which there's, there's more than one person in a relationship. That is explicitly 
uh, contradicted by the Scriptures. God did not design humanity that way. This isn't the first of many relationships. This is to be the one. But I want to make the observation that here in the beginning, when God created man and woman, when he created these two sexes, he made them capable of procreation together. And now get me, even though every marriage does not produce children, the only romantic and sexual relationship that God outlines for humanity is the one that is capable of procreation. Let me say that one more time. Even though every marriage does not produce children, the only romantic and sexual relationship that God outlines for humanity is the one that is capable of procreation. Their unique physical characteristics point to this fundamental truth of humanity. Our bodies tell us that this is true. They com we complement, male and females complement each other physically. And this leads us to an important observation, number five. That we, as humans, have integrity between body and soul. Between body and soul. And I credit this observation, this argument, to Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body. Now, when I use the word integrity, we know that can mean impeccable character. We use that to, to describe somebody has, has integrity. But it can, it, more fundamentally, it refers to being whole or undivided. An integer in math is, is, is one is a solid whole number, an integer. And so integrity means to be whole and, and undivided. And what we see here is that God has made us as whole beings, bodies and souls together. This is a unity as us, as human beings, that cannot be divided, cannot be separated. God made us for our bodies and our souls, our, our, our psychological self and our physio physiological self to be united and together. We are the union of material and immaterial. When we were made in God's image, every aspect of us reflects that image. It's wrong to say that our internal self reflects God's image, but our external self, our, our flesh and bones, does not. All of Adam and Eve all that God created from the dust reflected and imaged his glory. The early 20th century theologian Herman Bovink stated it this way. He says, man's body also belongs to the image of God. The body is not a tomb, but a wondrous masterpiece of God, constituting the essence of man as fully as the soul. Our bodies are created by God and are special in God's sight and, we're, and one day our bodies are going to be redeemed. At death, our souls are ripped from our bodies. But we, the whole creation is longing for when there's going to be this full redemption of all things and that includes our physical bodies. Bodies are so crucial to God's creation that he's going to redeem them, make them new and make them a part of the eternal state. We're going to live with bodies in the new heavens and new earth. That's how much God thinks of the body. And so when we look at our creation, how God has made us, both, and we think about the internal selves, our minds, and we think about our external selves, God made them to be together, to together reflect his glory. And so, get this, the Christian worldview has a high view of the body. I would argue the highest view of the body of any worldview. Now, we know that the body related to sin, if there's lust that the body has, that we don't just listen to whatever our, our flesh tells us to do. We don't want to sin. We seek to honor God, and so our flesh, our bodies, our minds, all of that is controlled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. 
but we believe the body is created special. Our bodies are gifts from God, and therefore they are not to be mutilated, they're not to be distorted, they're not to be maimed or to be killed. On top of this, the Christian worldview affirms from these chapters in Genesis that our bodies align with our souls. The physical aligns with the psychological. We believe that our chromosomes, our bodies, our sense of self were designed by God to be aligned. This is how God made humanity. That there would not be some division internally between someone feeling a certain way and their body showing something else. That's not the way God made humanity. He made us to be whole. By God's design, there's to be no division between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside. And yet, there are so many ways that our culture is trying to push this lie that somehow we are somebody different on the inside than we are on the outside. Encouraging small children to ask and to think whether or not they truly are what their bodies say that they are. And it's destructive. It creates, it creates so much internal dissonance for these people to realize that, that they're in a wrong body of sorts. This is not the way God intended for humanity to live, to be, to be in some sort of wrong tomb, some sort of wrong clothing of a body. He made us to be in sync. And our bodies are messages to us from God to image him, image him and to tell us who God intended us to be. Did he intend you to be a male or to a female? Our bodies help to tell us part of that moral message. The sixth thing we need to see from these opening chapters of Genesis is that God, sin has distorted but not destroyed God's good design. Sin has distorted but not destroyed God's good design. Because what we've been talking about is what God intended, right? What he set out to do when he made man in his image, chapters 1 and 2. But you look at that good design and that people would live in happy uh, submission to God. You know, that's not the way it is today. That's not the way it is. Well, that's what Genesis 3 helps us to understand. Genesis 3 describes mankind's fall from innocence into sin. When they rejected God as their Lord, when they doubted his word and they followed their own desires. And when they sinned, they plunged all of their progeny into this awful state. Now, it's important to realize that when man sinned, they did not lose the image of God. They did not lose the image of God. In fact, flip to Genesis chapter 9. Real quick. Genesis 9, this is after Genesis 3. Just simple observation there. Um, after the flood, and here God has given instructions to Noah and his descendants, and he affirms again here at post-fall that man was made in his image, and it still is a, a feature of mankind. Look in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So even here, Post-fall, there's an affirmation of the image of God in mankind. But remember we talked about how God gave mankind these special abilities 
these things that set us apart from all other creation. And, and man was supposed to use those abilities in order to glorify God and just to live in perfect harmony on earth with one another and with God. And it was to be this perfect setup as man represented God on the earth. Well, now, sin didn't take away those abilities. Mankind can still think and create and appreciate beauty and all those things, but now the, it's directed in the wrong place. Mankind's no longer focused on glorifying God. It's focused on living for self and seeking to glorify self. And so it turns all those capacities, all those abilities and talents that God has endowed humanity with and turns it in on itself. And it's destructive. And now tears apart relationships. It tears apart families and societies. It even tears apart bodies because sin is so destructive. And this is the ultimate slap in the face to the God who created us in his image. Again, theologian Hokema writes this. He says, What makes sin so serious is precisely the fact that man is now using God-given and God-imaging powers and gifts to do things that are an affront to his maker. He's using things that God has given and turning them that are, that are now an affront to his maker. And for our purposes this morning, this means, this understanding of Genesis 3 and how it distorts the image of God means that people's bodies and sexuality is now turned to please itself. Before, Adam and Eve were to use their sexuality to glorify God and to serve one another. But now, it's used to, for self-fulfillment and, 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 and exploitation of others. And friends, this is why now, post-Genesis 3, through the rest of the Bible, we get, we get instructions on prohibitions against all of the sexual perversions that are out there. Adultery, bestiality, homosexuality as in Leviticus 20 verse 13 calling it a, an abomination Paul's instructions in Romans chapter 1 saying that it's unnatural because all of those commands all of those instructions throughout the rest of scripture are all based upon this reality for what God's design was for humanity it makes sense that that homosexuality would be called an abomination because is it directly against what God set up in the beginning these are laws that ha are creational in nature. In other words, they are simply stating what should already be obvious from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This is against nature. It's against the natural relations that God set up, which is the language Paul uses in Romans 1. You see, the Bible condemns homosexuality not simply because God's capricious and he just likes to shoot down different things. It's because it violates God's design for humanity and strikes at the very heart of his creation. Mankind's rebellion against his creator in the area of sexuality has been seen throughout human history and is the same is true today. Casual sex and no-fault divorce directly contradict God's design and what he has set up for men and women in marriage. Sexual abuse of women and children is an affront to God because it's no longer using that sexuality as a gift and as a way to serve and to glorify God, but it's using in an exploitative way. And on top of this, the LGBTQ movement attacks God's design as laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. Homosexuality attacks God's design by claiming that men can be sexually attracted to and sexually active with men and women with women. 
God designed a male and female to have sexual relations, not two of the same sex. The God-given biology makes this clear, as well as his word. Transgenderism attacks God's design by claiming God messes up, uh, messes up the pairing of people's bodies and internal selves. It's taught that gender identity, their internal orientation, can be different from sex assigned at birth, their body parts, in other words. Transgenderism also attacks God's design of two sexes by teaching a spectrum of gender choices, as if people can pick and choose some androgynous combination. These sexual deviations are, have incredible disdain for the body. They look at our bodies and say something is wrong, something is not right, and they turn away from the way the biology is even set up. But see, in Christianity, we honor our bodies as made in the image of God. And yet, in homosexuality, transgenderism, there is, and even the other uh, sexual perversions, there is great contempt for the body. You see, people, and particularly young people, are taught to disregard their bodies for any indication of sexual identity. Don't look to your biology. Don't look to yourself. You need to look inside yourself and see what kind of feelings you have, and that's where you base your identity. So the, the mantra goes. People, people are taught today that feelings win over physiology. They're told that in order to be happy, you need to reject your body and follow your feelings, and this leads to people living extremely disjunctive lives. They believe that they are mismatched, and it's incredibly destructive to people's well-being. And as Luke made mention in the scripture reading, for people to reject what God has set up is to reject God himself. This, all of this rejection that we see in our society against God's design is ultimately a reflection of a rejection of God the creator. It's rebellion against him. It's sin against a holy God. But before we leave this section of, of knowing what the Bible says about sex and gender, we've got to say one more thing. And that is number seven, Christ has saved us and is transforming us. Christ has saved us and is transforming us. Our sexual sin and rebellion does not have the last word. It is, that sin is, is, is described all throughout the scriptures and we see it all in society today. But it doesn't have the last word. The final word in the scriptures is hope. We're not lost in our sin. There is a rescuer who has come to redeem us, who's come to set things right, who's come to direct us, to help us, to image God correctly in this world. We've, we have a marred image of God, a distorted image of God, but there's, there's a redemption that is possible. There's a way for that image to be recaptured and for us to once again live out our creational purpose. And it's through Jesus, the Son of God, who came to bear our sin on the cross for our, on our behalf. This idea of redemption, particularly redemption from sexual sin, is beautifully portrayed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so I'll invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, there's so much that can be said about the redemption that is offered in Christ, the change that results, what changes within us when we're saved, how God transforms us. But we need to see the fact that God does change us. God does transform us. 
He changes our desires. He changes our feelings. His transformation is total. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Paul writes this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now I want you to see a few things from these verses. First, notice that Paul upholds the hard stance that the Bible has on sexual perversion and sexual sin. He doesn't go soft here. He doesn't redefine sin. He doesn't say, well, it's okay. Uh, No, he says, if you are practicing these things, if these things define your life, then you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Salvation does not come. Eternal life does not come to those who are defined in these ways, who are sexually immoral, who are idolaters, thieves, He's very clear. And it's important to note, too, that this list is not exhaustive. Paul's not listing the only sins that keep you out of heaven. This is representative. He, sp- he spreads the gamut in order to explain that there those who make these things a habit of their lives and, and all sorts of rebellion are not inheriting the kingdom of God because they show that they're not children of God. They don't want to honor their creator. They're, looking, they're rebelling against their creator to practice these things. But did you catch verse 11? After listing all of these life-dominating sins that can be so horrible and people can be trapped in and they keep someone out of the kingdom of heaven, Paul says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. In other words, some in the Corinthian church were once defined in these ways, once had these sin patterns in their lives, were once considered adulterers and sexually immoral and homosexuals and, and thieves and idolaters. And yet they are not anymore. Notice the past tense. Such were some of you. They're not still defined by these sins. These sins have been put away with. They've repented of them and God has transformed them. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. These people experience conversion. That's what conversion is. It's, it changes us from our previous allegiances to God, to walking faithfully with him. God got a hold of these people and transformed them. And this is the promise for all those who trust in Jesus, is that he is transforming us into the image of God. Transformation through Jesus. Because you see this, we were made in the image of God. Our image of God in us was marred and distorted, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.16. He is the perfect man. He is the perfect one to image and mirror and represent God on this earth, is he not? And yet, the work of salvation is that you and I, through the Spirit's power, are being made more and more conformed, Romans 8, 29, conformed into the image of His Son. We're conformed into the image of the perfect man, thereby fulfilling our creational purpose. Being able to mirror God to the world, to to represent Him in a more faithful way. And God's 
in a process of transforming us. I'm not suggesting that those who were changed, as said in these verses, lost all temptation to their former sins. So don't hear me saying that. We come to Christ and our desires do change and we are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. We're a new creation. But that doesn't mean that the old man, our sin nature, goes away entirely. It's still there. The temptations still plague us. And so there are ways in which that sin continues to claw at us and, and we have to continually to resist and to say no as God is continually transforming us, sanctifying us. So there's, and that one day we will be totally transformed. One day those evil desires will completely go away. And right now is the age, the time of struggle between the time of our conversion to when we're glorified. It's struggle. But we've been made new. And remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. God's not done with you. He's not done with any of us. He's continuing to transform us. But that is the promise that is held out to every single human being. If we would, anyone would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, believing that his sacrifice on the cross was, was in their place, that they deserved to be punished by the wrath of God, but instead Jesus took their place on that cross, that there's forgiveness that is offered and there's a work of transformation that begins. God will and can transform you. The gospel is that powerful. If you are here this morning or you are hearing my voice and you have not repented of your sins, turned to Jesus and you are still living in your sins, I plead with you to look to Jesus. Only he can give you transformation. Only he can make you whole. Only he will one day totally remake you into what you were created to be. Don't hold on to your sin any longer. Don't continue to pursue the feelings and, and the cravings of your, of your flesh. But repent and turn away from them and look to God and look to his provision in his son, Jesus Christ. Christ died for the ungodly, for people like you and for me. And that is the hope that we have in the gospel. This gift of salvation is exactly that. It's a gift. But it's a gift we must receive and it's a gift that we must confess. Well, we've seen, we looked at what we are to know, the Bible says, about sex and gender. Let me quickly land this plane and talk about how to apply what the Bible says about sex and gender. This is, these are not going to be new things. These are all applications that I've already talked about, okay? How to apply what the Bible says. The first is to apply it to yourself. Apply it to yourself. This is how you think about yourself. Now this is, let me say that whether you are hearing me and you experience normal heterosexual desires or whether you are struggling with homosexual or transgender desires, you need to apply the truths of Scripture that we've been looking at this morning. Number one is worth. That you are worth a great deal because you're made in the image of God. Every single human being has Tremendous dignity and worth because of that image. Secondly, integrity. All of you, body and soul, are gifts from your creator. Do not neglect those gifts. Recognize that integrity of who you are both internally and externally. We need to continue to merge those together and to feel whole. But thirdly, 
applying the truths of Scripture to us is that we're broken. We all recognize sin in our lives. We all see the way sin affects us sexually. But it's important to realize that those sins and those desires that we might feel in us are aberrations. They're distortions from what God originally intended, and we've got to call it out as such. We can't just listen to however we feel and think that following that is right. We can't listen to Disney that tells us to just follow our hearts. We've got to speak against our hearts and to realize that our feelings can lead us astray, and we must correct that, them with truth. The fourth thing we need to do to apply ourselves is realize that in Christ we're redeemed. Our identity starts with being in Jesus. We find our identity there, that we are in the Son of God. There, the whole theology of us being united to Christ, we are united to the Son of God, and that is where that the, the Christian worldview roots our identity is we're made in the image of God, and we have been then united to the Son of God. Our identity is in Christ, not in how we feel or in who we're attracted to. Finally, we apply it by obedience. Obedience. Christian, God has two claims upon you. He made you and he redeemed you. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, seek to follow him in all your ways. This is what it means for Jesus to be Lord, is to obey him. And he's told us in his word how we are to obey him. It's that simple. And we cry out asking for God's help to help us to obey. Now, if you are struggling with your desires, not uh, feeling different things, I ask you this morning not to be silent. This is not something for you to battle on your own. This is something for you to talk to your parents, talk to me, talk to one of the other pastors, elders, small group leaders. Begin to, to share with somebody what you're feeling. Don't let the, your own mind be where that stays. We want to help you. Finally, this morning, we need to apply it to how we interact with others. We apply this to ourselves. We now need to apply this to how we minister, how we talk with others. How do we talk to coworkers? How do we talk to family members? How do we talk to neighbors? And there's so much that we could say here. Um, but I just simply want to say this. We've got to remember that everyone that we talk to is made in the image of God. They have worth, they have dignity, and therefore we must treat them with love and respect. No matter who we're speaking with, whether they're living in an adulterous relationship or have adopted a homosexual lifestyle or have tried to transition to the opposite gender, they are made in the image of God. We've got to be able to see through that and see the worth and dignity that God applies to them. We must talk with love and patience. We must talk with humility. We may not be tempted in the same way that they are, but our, our record of sin is great too, and we must recognize that, but at the, at the cross, all are on level ground. We must minister with humility. Unfortunately, Christians have been responsible for treating people who sin greatly in these sexual areas with shunning and ostracization. Now let me say this, the Bible is clear that in the church, after repeated attempts to win somebody back, we must remove those from our fellowship who do not live according to God's word. But this does not mean that we treat homosexuals with coldness and hate. It does not mean that we treat transgender individuals with disdain. We've got to be able to call the sin sin and yet to be able to treat the person with dignity and respect. 
And let me say that there are organizations, some of which I quoted earlier, that are pushing for the full inclusion and acceptance of LGBTQ people. They find their most powerful argument for why their position is better than our position, or we'd say the Bible's position, because they say the Bible's position causes harm. If you call these things sin, then you do harm to people's lives. But see, they produce a false dichotomy. They say either approve their lifestyle or cause them harm. And we say we cannot approve their lifestyle, but we can still love them. And we've got to fight for that tension. We must have truth and love in our strategy. This person is lost. They are living contrary to God's design. They must carry a heavy burden with this, this, this dissonance, this living against what God has set up. And we must have compassion. We want to show them the path to peace, to forgiveness, and hope. And we can't show them that path if we're cold, judgmental. Listen, we must never soften God's position on sin. But we also must never dull God's heart of love. May God give us grace and courage to be faithful ambassadors for him in the days ahead. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we cry out to you, Lord, recognizing that all around us are people who are rebelling against you. And that has always been true. But we are seeing it put on display, particularly in the areas of people's self-identity, of their sexuality, and that they are trying to rebel against you at the very fundamental level of their bodies. Oh, Father, we cry out that you would please enable your gospel to go forward that would, would show people the hope that this is not the answer, that there is not fulfillment found in these sorts of perversions that you would help them to see and help us to be faithful witnesses to what your design is. That we are created to be satisfied and fulfilled when we live according to our creational design. Father, would you help us to know these truths well and to minister them with love and patience. We pray in Christ's name, amen.